Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview uh, policymakers, scholars, and business executives about some of the urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, here today, uh, not joining me in the studio because of the coronavirus, we're actually uh, doing a remote interview uh, with Dr. Annette Zimmerman at Princeton University. So she is a postdoctoral researcher at Princeton uh, affiliated with the University Center for Human Values, as well as the Center for Information Technology Policy. Uh, currently, she is focusing on the ways in which uh, disproportionate distributions of risk and uncertainty associated with the use of emerging technologies uh, could have on, on democratic values such as equality and justice. So that's a sort of a long-winded way of, of saying uh, she studies sort of the intersection between algor algorithms and AI, those tech issues, as well as some of the normative issues such as ethics and philosophical debates. Uh, she was recently named as one of the top experts uh, to follow on AI bias uh, issues by um, Quartz, uh, the pretty famous uh, tech magazine. Uh, and she has been developing and teaching an interdisciplinary AI ethics course for graduate students here at Princeton uh, over the past two years. So thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Zimmerman. Thank you for having me. Uh, and also w with me, also remotely, all the way from California, is, is my co-host, Arjamani. He uh, majors in computer science, is a junior uh, at Princeton, and does AI research uh, in the field of computer vision, uh, especially uh, on trying to get computers to answer questions about images. Um, and, and he also leads Princeton's Data Science Society, which promotes data science on campus by bringing speakers and hosting workshops. So he's very interested in the uh, intersection between technology and society and how technology can be used to develop a better and more ethical future for us. Uh, so thanks so much for, for coming back on the show with me, Arjun. Thanks for having me again, Tiger. Awesome. So uh, uh, Dr. Zimmerman, you, you really does such a a wide range of, uh, you study such a wide range of issues. And I think maybe we can just begin by looking into algorithmic bias and then gradually sort of unfold many of the interesting things that you study. So would you mind just telling us a little bit of, about your, your research? What is algorithmic bias? How do you define it? Uh, maybe we can start from there. Well, I think often when people hear algorithmic bias, they have a kind of colloquial uh, meaning of bias in mind. And that colloquial meaning is often just a negative one. So algorithmic bias then is a heavily moralized conception um, where I think most people hearing it kind of think, well, bias must be bad, right? So any form of bias is just going to be morally and politically objectionable. Uh, confusingly enough, in computer science, uh, the concept of bias it's actually used a little bit differently than most policymakers or just ordinary citizens would use the term. Uh, and it's uh, become quite apparent uh, when looking at contemporary and uh, recent computer science and statistics research uh, that simply eradicating bias, unfortunately, doesn't get rid of the social and moral problems that are often associated with contemporary forms of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So one key challenge is that even if I don't have bias in my AI system, uh, I may still have a ton of variance, right? So this is known as the bias-variance trade-off. It's a, a kind of issue that gets uh, covered in many introductory computer science classes, but that unfortunately isn't widely known in society at large. Uh, the trade-off is as follows. On the one hand, I could have a lot of bias in my system, which means that 
uh, my system doesn't give me an accurate representation of what the world is actually like, right? So that uh, can be described as underfitting. And by contrast, uh, if I have a lot of variance, uh, my system is picking up random noise, right? So it's modeling things that it shouldn't be modeling in a different way, the, the kind of flip side of this case. Uh, computer scientists call this overfitting. So the system then just latches onto you whatever random noise it uh, picks up on and starts modeling that. Uh, but by de definition, a computer scientist will tell you that's not a scenario in which we have bias, yet it looks deeply objectionable if we care about uh, our systems actually giving us a faithful representation of the social uh, and political world. Now, all of these issues then kind of suggest that Algorithmic bias is part of the problem when we think about things like algorithmic discrimination or algorithmic injustice, but it doesn't cover all corners of the problem space. So I think it's really important for us to reflect on what types of problems we're dealing with here, uh, why exactly they are moral and political problems before we rush to solutions of algorithmic injustice that focus exclusively on algorithmic bias. Right. So, so it seems that we have to kind of distinguish when we talk about bias, we have to distinguish the technical definition, which is what computer mm -hmm. scientists use, and then also the social definition. Um, and the sort of solving the technical problem of bias only goes so far to actually solving the social problem of bias, which runs much deeper, if, that, if I understand correctly. That's true. So it is absolutely correct to say that uh, a purely technological fix often doesn't go far enough in terms of addressing structures of social injustice. Uh, but further than that, it is also true that there are more under-acknowledged purely technological issues uh, that also can't be resolved purely by focusing on things like algorithmic bias. Uh, so I, I don't only want to suggest uh, that uh, the technological side should be exclusively concerned with fixing algorithmic bias defined in kind of quantifiable mathematical terms. And then we have to do the tricky work, uh, which is political and social work, of addressing inequalities that we find in society. Uh, while that's true, again, it's too uh, reductionist uh, as a perspective. Um, and there are very, pu very interesting purely technological uh, problems in this AI and machine learning space. Um, that I think merit much further consideration. So for instance, uh, when people uh, do research on algorithmic fairness, so uh, the, the kind of branch of computer science that does that right now is called FATML, so Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency in Machine Learning. Uh, and there people have been really focused on articulating various mathematical fairness measures. Uh, so for instance, we could think, well, let's treat all individuals and groups in the same way that are subject to our algorithmic decision-making system, right? So let's um, you know, distribute probabilities across those individuals and groups in a way that doesn't take into account uh, social demographic uh, disparities. Uh, we could also work with the conception of um, equalizing certain outcomes, right? So, so it's, it's, it's maybe more than a fair uh, equality of opportunity principle. Maybe we wanna be more interventionist in our approach to algorithmic fairness. But troublingly, it turns out that um, there are multiple really plausible mathematical definitions of algorithmic fairness. And so then many people ask, well, can't we have all of them? 
And unfortunately, that's not mathematically possible in a lot of cases. So there's been a lot of interesting research in computer science lately uh, that has shown that reconciling multiple fairness metrics, mathematically defined, is just impossible. So mathematically impossible in many cases. Um, and so these impossibility theorems pose a really tricky technological problems uh, problem that does mirror the social and political problems that happen outside of the model, but that are also not purely reducible to those social effects. So I do think that there are really unique questions both in computer science and in political philosophy uh, that shouldn't be tried to, or we shouldn't try to collapse them into each other. Uh, so would you mind telling us some examples of, uh, of where uh, exactly we see algorithms exacerbating sort of the structural injustices in our society? I mean, I think you study a lot about criminal justice, policing, especially those cases. Uh, and in, in what precise ways uh, are algorithms doing so? And, and how do you think we can address those? Well, I think one interesting example that has uh, attracted a lot of attention recently uh, is the so-called Compass algorithm, um, which I'm sure you may have read about uh, in the news. Uh, it's an algorithm that is used to predict the risk that a criminal offender will recidivate again in the future. Um, and so this algorithm, uh, or this tool, has been very controversial uh, because we have empirical data that shows that there is massive racial disparities uh, associated with the use of that tool. Um, and so specifically, uh, investigative journalists at ProPublica showed a few years ago in a seminal study um, that the tool fails differently for black defendants than it does for white defendants. So there's a disparate distribution of error rates, and therefore there's a disparate distribution of the risk of receiving a mistaken conviction or a mistakenly high sentence or a mistakenly severe uh, legal repercussion. Um, and so if that is distributed in a way that mirrors structures of racial inequality, that looks like an immediate moral and political problem. Uh, now the question is, where does that bias come from? Right? So many people looked at this algorithm and they said, well, you know, how can an algorithm discriminate an algorithm just by a computer science textbook definition is a precise list of precise instructions, right? So where can things go wrong? It's really unclear, uh, you know, unless I uh, have a really malicious uh, programmer sitting behind <laughs> uh, the development of the tool, um, how can we end up with these immensely racially disparate um, uh, outcomes? Now, in the case of Compass, I think there's multiple reasons for that. So if we kind of envisage the machine learning loop, um, we can trace where political and moral baggage comes into our system, even if we don't uh, consciously or deliberately encode bias in some way. So for instance, uh, in the case of Compass, one of the first things that we have to do as programmers when we come up with a tool of that kind is we have to have a conception in place of what constitutes risk. Right? So we need to define who are we going to label as a high-risk individual on what basis, right? So what, what, what are the features and variables that we are going to use uh, in order to determine who is accurately labeled as a high-risk individual? And unfortunately, a risky individual 
is not a straightforward concept, right? So, so again, it's politically and morally contested how we should define risky behavior. There's multiple possibilities for that, right? So are we looking at prior offenses? Are we looking at what your friends and family do? Are we looking at your income? Are we looking at your residence? There are many, many different ways of cashing that out. Now, Compass took a quite uh, all-encompassing approach to that and included a lot of those features that I just mentioned. So they, they had an incredibly high number of features in order to determine riskiness. Um, and so the reasoning was, well, that's certainly going to make our judgment much more accurate. But of course, a lot of those features that I just mentioned will replicate and mirror structures of inequality throughout history, right? So your residence uh, or your educational attainment or even things like your prior behavior will be shaped by the ways in which the world interacts with you and the opportunities that you as an individual have been afforded so far. Uh, so it's always uh, the case that our models interact dynamically with our social world. That makes it very hard to have a neutral algorithm. It Yeah, it seems like uh, while the discourse is slowly maybe moving towards, okay, well, AI is dangerous now rather than dangerous in the future. There's still kind of this um, idea of, you know, AI's real danger will be posed once uh, it, it we reach sort of this idea of strong AI or sort of general AI, general intelligence, and then, and then AI can take over the world. And there's all this sort of fear mongering over that. Um, you know, how does that, do you, do you feel that that discourse is less productive um, and maybe hinders more important discussions that we have to have now about AI's impact on the kind of social issues that you're speaking about? Yes, Arjun, I think that's a really important issue. I think uh, right now, public discourse is really saturated with apocalyptic visions of what artificial intelligence and machine learning can do. Uh, that's dangerous for two reasons in my mind. On the one hand, as you rightly point out, it does distract from the reality that we're currently using forms of machine learning and algorithmic decision-making here and now. I, I would argue that many uh, ordinary citizens who have nothing to do with computer science uh, aren't fully aware of the extent to which we're using algorithmic decision-making more and more, and in particular in ways that affect all citizens, right? So in a way um, that replaces kind of standard public um, collective decision-making, um, welfare benefit allocation, credit scoring, uh, the criminal justice case that we just discussed. So in, in many areas of our um, ordinary lives, uh, algorithmic decision-making and machine learning play this increasing role. And I think if we're hyper-focused on a doomsday scenario where robot, uh, robot overlords are just going to rule us all, um, that unfortunately distracts from the reality that right now we could be making political and moral choices that shape the ways in which AI affects our lives. And so I'm worried about a case where we at some point end up with a lot of unreflective deployment of AI in many different domains, uh, and we come to rely on that use in a way where it's almost impossible to take it back. Um, and we haven't actually had that democratic conversation about whether we really need to be using uh, AI and machine learning in order to solve particular problems. 
Now, it might very well be the case that often it's very good to use AI and machine learning, especially when we're dealing with really complex decision making. But we still need to justify as a society why we want to automate. So we need to be aware of the costs uh, associated with automating some parts of our decisions. And we need to agree as a society if we're okay with that. So for instance, it might very well turn out that some machine learning systems um, just have a certain degree of opacity that we're unable to get rid of. Right. So sophisticated forms of machine learning um, rely on opacity in order to detect patterns well. Um, so it, that's not a feature that we necessarily should be aiming to eradicate from a machine learning system. But we do need to have that democratic conversation about that, where we say we're OK with losing some degree of explainability in favor of these other important normative goals. Uh, and so I think if that doesn't happen, and instead we're, we just see AI as this dis distant future scenario that doesn't really affect us here and now, I think we're buying into a notion of helplessness that I think is ultimately going to be really corrosive. Uh, on the other hand, though, I think the doomsday scenario is also um, dangerous because it might suggest to people that all forms of AI are just inherently dangerous. Uh, so that phenomenon is known as the tech clash. Uh, and so I think we want to be cautious about making sweeping generalizations about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, I think the key thing that many people, including policymakers, miss is that a domain-specific judgment is really important when we evaluate the moral and political stakes of machine learning. It might very well be true that in criminal justice and in policing, it is just too objectionable, given the structures of injustice that we have right now in society, uh, to continue to use certain forms of machine learning. Right? But at the same time, you might think maybe some medical AI applications aren't subject to those same moral and political problems or not subject to the problems in the same way. So it's really important to adopt a more nuanced perspective on where exactly are we deploying and for what purpose? I, th I think it just seems that humans are just more easily enamored by those uh, the grand narratives and stories rather than the nitty gritty arguments. And that's why you say even policymakers sometimes miss out on that. So mm -hmm. do you think it's almost inevitable that we'll continue to dwell on this kind of doomsday vision, you know, the society all kind of collectively looking at that rather than focusing the actual important debates, or, or are you seeing, already seeing good changes, at least at the policymaking level? I am seeing some changes, especially in interdisciplinary academic research. I am not sure how optimistic I can be about current policymaking efforts in this area, actually. So on the academic side, uh, we see more and more that computer scientists are talking to philosophers and social scientists and vice versa. There is really important uh, research coming out in sociology and anthropology and all of these kinds of more social science and humanities-oriented uh, disciplines that is informing computer scientists. And it looks like many computer scientists are, in fact, really interested and open in engaging with those researchers on these very contemporary issues. So not focusing on the doomsday scenarios and instead having a much more nuanced discourse about the moral and political stakes of AI here and now. Now, unfortunately in the policy domain, one thing that I'm seeing is 
an awareness of the problem that AI affects us here and now, but a real lack of awareness of this domain specificity that I just mentioned. So a lot of policy efforts, both, both in the US and in Europe recently, have tried to articulate catalogs of values guiding our ethical thinking about uh, AI. Um, and they're always kind of presented as essentially a wish list. Uh, so you'll see policy documents saying, here are the top 10 values that we want to protect in our policymaking in this area. And it'll be something like transparency, privacy, explainability, fairness. Um, as a political and moral philosopher, I look at these lists and I just can't help but thinking, well, all of these normative goals are somehow valuable, but they're really contested. They are not straightforwardly defined. It's not like we have this one conception of privacy or this one conception of fairness that we can just implement. Like it's, it's, it's not easy to operationalize those normative values. And so because those policy documents often don't even try to operationalize these values, they end up with pretty vague recommendations. Uh, so it's usually something like, well, you know, we both need to protect privacy and fairness. But very often, as recent computer science research in this area has shown, there are trade-offs between those values and we have to make really tricky choices, right? So very often we might be in a dilemma where sacrificing a little bit of transparency might give me more accurate results. But then the question is, how much is that worth if we really care about transparency? These are complicated questions. We can't just say, well, both of them are just important. Uh, we're, we are going to be in situations where we can't achieve all values at the same time. And so I think... Uh, well, well, just to just to quickly chime in about the, the part about operationalizing, the, the, uh, obviously policymakers and even... Uh, I would say, I, I don't know too much about your background per se, but I would say a lot of those philosophers and people who are interested in those questions might not have the actual, you know, AI research background or, or computer science background into actually doing those things. And I think that's something I often struggle to, to think about as well. So how do you think we can really address that dissonance? It doesn't seem that anytime soon the politicians on, you know, Capitol Hill will really understand the nitty gritty anyways. That is very true. So that that's a real concern that uh, often there's just a technological literacy gap. Um, I mean, I agree that many politicians and policymakers at large don't know enough about the technological underpinnings that we kind of need to know about in order to really come up with good judgments about AI and machine learning. At the same time, I think we should be cautious not to build up expertise in AI and machine learning as this essentially unattainable goal. Uh, I think even policymakers who have no interest in the more nitty-gritty mathematical and statistical debates could feasibly acquire a more nuanced understanding of what this technology actually is. Uh, so I think as researchers in particular, we have a responsibility not only to inform and to use our expertise to help policymakers make better decisions, but to also communicate that research isn't this, uh, this unattainable um, you know, crystal ball. So research ex expertise and machine learning um, is something that can, can come in various degrees. 
And I think as soon as uh, policymakers say, well, you know, all of that is too mathy and too statsy for us, we can't possibly try to understand this in more nuance and more depth. Uh, that's exactly where we end up with really blunt and uh, unhelpful policy instruments. Uh, so I think we need to allow for a range of different levels of expertise, and we can do a lot as a research community to make that slightly more accessible. Um, so I think that process is luckily starting at the moment, but I think we still have a huge amount of uh, work to do in this area. Yeah, I think this is this is super interesting uh, discussion and um I do think we'll probably circle back to the sort of the public discourse that that's going on around AI. Um, but we just want to let's dive into to your fairness work and kind of the ideas and the issues that you grapple with uh, on a daily basis. And so we'll start with a, a paper you wrote recently that, if I understand correctly, it argues that um, when we talk about an AI system being fair or unfair, it's not just um, a discussion about the harm that it actually causes, but even the fact that it can place some populations at more risk than others. Um, and sort of that imposition of, of um, unequal risk is itself problematic, independent of whether harm is actually caused in an unequal manner. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain that idea in more depth. Absolutely. Uh, so a lot of current thinking on algorithmic bias and algorithmic injustice is focused on the phenomenon of discrimination. Uh, and more specifically, discriminatory harm. So the question is, can I define what algorithmic injustice is? So what kind of problem it is, morally and politically speaking, uh, by just pinpointing all instances in which the use of AI and machine learning uh, actually harms people in a kind of tangible, material way. And so then the question would be, does it impose those harms in a way that exacerbates uh, structures of racial or gender or class inequality? So if that's true, then we're dealing with the phenomenon of discriminatory harm. So a kind of tangible um, setback of your interests as a member of an already disadvantaged group. So it could be something like you get less opportunities, you get worse treatment, uh, you're being treated in a kind of disrespectful way or other forms of uh, treatment that we typically would label as discriminatory harm. Uh, so I think that is, in fact, the paradigmatic case of algorithmic injustice. But we shouldn't be too quick to assume that that actually defines what algorithmic injustice is in all cases. So very often... Um, I think the mere use of algorithmic decision-making tools can mean not only imposing discriminatory harm on uh, people who are disadvantaged in society, and in particular, who are structurally oppressed, but also it can mean imposing risks of harm on people that never actually eventuate in something that we can easily define as a tangible kind of material setback of their interests. They're just living with the possibility that if they were to interact with a particular machine learning tool at some point in their lives, they would probably receive worse treatment, again, because they're a member of a group that is already disadvantaged in society. So for instance, think about the Compass case that we discussed before, right? So the people who are 
being assessed by compass um, or defendants, right? And so you might be thinking, well, you know, I'm not currently a criminal defendant um, and, you know, you might have the goal of not ever being a criminal defendant. But guess what? You might think, well, as soon as I do, or if I ever interact with this tool, what would be my chances of receiving fair treatment in comparison to other members of society? Now, if you know that that risk of um, mistaken assessment is distributed unfairly across uh, members of different racial groups, for instance, you might be very concerned, even if you yourself are not in fact being harmed by the use of that system. And so this generalizes to other examples as well. Facial recognition tools uh, that are used in law enforcement and in immigration enforcement are another great example, I think. So you might think, well, you know, uh, I'm not being profiled by the police right now on the basis of a tool that has been demonstrated um, to be really inaccurate for people of color. Um, but, you know, once you do uh, get stopped on the basis of that tool, making an inaccurate judgment about you, um, then that harm would eventuate, right? The question is, do we actually need to wait for you to experience discriminatory harm in order for us to be able to say, well, you're currently living under a condition of uh, algorithmic injustice. So the relevant philosophical debate in this area, which is uh, all about the ethics of risk and uncertainty, asks, can we sometimes say that the mere imposition of a risk, even if it doesn't eventuate in harm for you, could wrong you, right? So can you be wronged just by bearing a risk that doesn't actually eventuate for you? And so my view is, yeah, there are many cases in which you know, there is no harm, but there is foul. There is foul play in those cases. Um, and so I think a plausible theory of what algorithmic injustice is needs to take that into account. And so, of course, the upshot is the people who have a moral complaint against the use of some algorithmic decision-making systems is much larger than we might think. So the community of people who have a moral complaint against algorithmic injustice created by Comcast, for instance, doesn't only include defendants, it's a much wider social problem. Now, of course, there's different levels of moral complaint here, depending on what my position is in society and whether I'm a beneficiary of injustice or whether I'm oppressed by injustice, right? So we still have to differentiate there. Um, but it's not so easy uh, to actually determine um, what sort of constituency should complain against algorithmic injustice. So my work is all about complicating that question. I think it's really important to get clear on what kind of problem algorithmic injustice is before we try to solve it. I mean, in terms of just, just quickly following up on this, providing possible solutions and also clarifying up the sort of the definition of algorithmic fairness and injustice a little bit. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you wrote uh, in this article in Boston Review titled uh, Technology Can't Fix Algorithmic Injustice and basically kind of distinguishes neutrality and fairness. Those are kind of two different concepts in when we talk about um, algorithmic justice and, and issues like that. I mean, you wrote that uh, even if code is modified with the aim of securing procedural fairness, however, we're left with the deeper philosophical and political issue of whether neutrality constitutes fairness in background 
conditions of pervasive inequality and structural injustice. So basically, you, to to put it more uh, in a more intuitive way to, for our listener, it's it's like saying your code might be neutral, but the outcome might still be unfair. So how do you address that kind of tension there? I, I'd love to hear you elaborate a little bit more on, on that issue. Right. Um, so I think many people struggle intuitively with the claim that if I'm using a neutral decision-making procedure, I can still have really bad outcomes. So how could that be? I mean, we've addressed one facet of that problem before when we talked about the normative and political baggage that is attached to engineering the concepts that underpin algorithmic structures, right? So a concept like risk, given that that's subject to social and political disagreement, might smuggle in a lot of normative baggage into my system. Um, And so even if I don't intend to bring about certain outcomes uh, with my system, the mere fact that I've defined and engineered a concept Uh, that can create outcomes that reflect that normative baggage and often uh, that reflects them in a a kind of bad or unjust way. I also think that it's important to remember that uh, neutral treatment under conditions of inequality will just often have unequal effects. So I think we know that intuitively from other domains of life, but I think we struggle to apply it to um, the realm of artificial intelligence and technology more broadly. Um, So you can think about that um, first in a kind of non-technological setting. So if I have to make a decision between, um, you know, multiple people with different abilities, you know, like people are born with different heights, different levels of strength. Let's say, um, you know, I have multiple people on a boat and the boat is, sinking and I have to think about, you know, like, how do I save all of these people? Uh, I think intuitively I will think about, okay, are there any children on this boat? Are there any people who maybe can't swim? Are there going to be people who are weaker or slower? Uh, Which is, you know, in many cases, uh, not their fault. And in fact, it it wouldn't guide my decision-making in a rescue mission. Uh, But I would be sensitive to the fact that there is some form of inequality there, right? And I would adjust my decision-making accordingly. Now, when we use algorithms to make decisions, I think a lot of people think, well, that's inherently neutral, so there can't be any sort of sensitivity to those social inequalities. Um, And so I think that thinking is really misguided. So if you remember our rescue scenario, we should apply that same logic to our evaluation of AI and machine learning. And we should think, well, just descriptively equal treatment, descriptively neutral treatment for people who find themselves in really different social and political conditions and who objectively don't have the same opportunities, that will necessarily lead to outcomes that are unjust. So I I think this brings up a lot of interesting issues about what the role and responsibility of the developers of those AI systems are. Um, And so in particular, it brings up two questions um, from my perspective. One is, um, you know, uh, I think we, as you, as you mentioned, we tend to see AI as this sort of idea of learned helplessness that we, we don't really have much control over these systems and therefore we don't have as much responsibility over those systems. So um, my first question uh, would be, you know, in, in all cases, um, if an AI system makes a mistake, uh, 
do we assign responsibility to the creators of that AI system? Um, and actually, maybe if we can uh, answer that and then we can kind of go from there to go. Well, I think one uh, problem is that it's very rarely the case that only one person creates a um, machine learning tool or an AI tool, uh, and that's that. So often we're dealing with very complex um, modes of cooperation where multiple experts are collaborating on a project. Not all of them might have the shared uh, intention. Uh, they're not acting as one uh, big kind of collective agent. Um, and so then, of course, once a tool gets developed, we still need a private corporation to actually put it out into the world. And another private corporation or a government or some other entity procuring that technology and using it to uh, solve complex decisions. So there's many people involved in a process so from the design stage to the deployment stage. And so the question is, when it comes to allocating responsibility for, in particular, unjust outcomes or other bad, inaccurate, intransparent outcomes, it's not like we can easily identify one culprit. Arguably, one thing we've already done right when we ask this question uh, is we're not trying to allocate responsibility to the AI itself. Uh, again, that would be uh, a notion that is deeply misguided. Uh, so people who kind of envisage AI as these basically autonomous robots or you know killer overlords, uh, they might be tempted to just blame an AI system itself. Um, so if we're already talking about allocating responsibility to human decision makers who are involved in design and deployment, that's already the correct first step. But the question remains, how should we distribute responsibility across those different agents, in particular in light of the fact that not all of them, or maybe none of them, will have a malicious agenda? Uh, and typically we think that if we're blaming somebody, that's only appropriate uh, if they deliberately caused harm in some form. Um, and so that's very often not the case. I do think that uh, there are interesting examples in other domains of, um, in particular, the philosophy of law, where uh, philosophers have thought about allocating responsibility for bad outcomes or even just for risk impositions, uh, even if they're not strictly controllable by the agent that um, puts kind of tools or services out into the world. So that is often known as the strict liability model. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reasoning is this. There might be some goods and services and tools that are just quite risky. So the risks of harms uh, that are attached to the use of those tools and goods and services uh, are so vast that when things go wrong, we want to hold the providers of those tools accountable, not the consumers. Right? So we don't want to blame people um, who use or procure a tool, um, even if they've done so in a kind of foreseeably stupid way. So there's a lot of case law, especially um, kind of in American and English tort law, um, where consumers have made pretty uh, stupid decisions about how to use certain um, tools and goods. Um, but still, um, it was shown that actually the corporation that provided 
those goods and tools uh, should have made it more clear um, on how they should and should not be used. And so therefore the corporations got sued. Now, I'm not saying that we should always adopt a strict liability model, right? So that's clearly implausible, uh, especially in cases where uh, the harms attached to algorithmic decision-making and other forms of automation are in fact genuinely uncertain, genuinely unforeseeable. So there, there could be always accidents and flukes that no reasonable person could foresee. But of course, uh, in many cases, we do have some predictions about things that could potentially go wrong. And in those cases, I think it is appropriate to hold, in particular, private corporations accountable. So I don't think uh, it's fair to blame individual programmers and individual computer scientists uh, necessarily. They shouldn't be our primary focus here. Um, but I do think that corporate decision makers uh, should be blamed if they deploy tools um, in a world knowing full well that they might replicate uh, structures of inequality and undermine um, the rights of democratic citizens and the equal status of democratic citizens, especially if the sole motive for doing so is profit. Uh, so I think this is where democratic states actually have a huge role uh, of creating legal categories of accountability that enable us to uh, actually hold corporations accountable for exercising massive amounts of power in a way that erodes the democratic values that we think are important. Interesting. So I, I think the second or rather the flip part of that question is what AI researchers and what corporations can do to, um, to sort of fix these algorithms. And that's where, um, that's where for me as, 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 you know, somebody who's done a little bit of AI research, it, it's, as as much as I would not want to put an algorithm that is biased in, in a social way towards harming one uh, sec, uh, one sort of section of the population, as much as I wouldn't want to create an algorithm that does that, um, I also worry about the idea of sort of trying to play God um, by kind of going into either the algorithm, the mechanics of the algorithm, or uh, perhaps even more... Um, strongly kind of going into the data set itself and trying to balance that or, or take out certain features that might sort of improve the accuracy of the predictor variable that you're trying to, that you're trying to predict. So I think, uh, you know, you make the argument that the very choice of the predictors, the very choice of the features, these are in many ways socially influenced and socially biased, and that makes a lot of sense. But then these are also things that are socially accepted, right? So in a sense, for, for me as an AI researcher to say, um, I'm going to take out this particular variable that has a socioeconomic basis, even though that hurts my accuracy on this metric, that while that metric might itself be socially biased, it is socially accepted, right? And so, so, so I guess it, it is a concern as well from the AI research community, maybe, that um, are we exercising too much power or playing God too much um, by actually trying to modify these algorithms for good social intentions? Are there kind of these unexpected or un, uh, unforeseen consequences? And, and we're sort of going against existing social institutions in an attempt to be more fair. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think design is certainly a power problem. Uh, so when I design a system, I'm not only thinking about how to make a decision in the right way, so how do I solve a given problem 
in a way that I think kind of matches some important normative goals. Um, and so for that purpose, I would, for instance, try to come up with a good fairness metric amongst other things. But also, I think I'm not only thinking about the decision quality when I design, I'm also thinking about the decision landscape. Um, so what I mean by that is I'm not only saying, here's how I want to solve this particular problem, and this is how I think, uh, you know, this is the right way of solving it. I also have at least an implicit view about the kind of problem that I think I should be solving. So that's about uh, contrasting multiple possible decision problems that I could, you know, use my skills as a programmer for to, to kind of tackle. Um, now, I think many people in the AI community are much more focused on the former. So how do I solve a problem in the right way? How do I ensure decision quality? And the decision landscape issue, so am I solving the right problem? Am I using AI for the right purpose? That is often more implicit. So I think one key thing that uh, people in the applied uh, machine learning and AI community can do is to think more consciously about the decision landscape. So that involves asking things like, if I solve this problem, what have I actually done? Which values am I optimizing for? Uh, if I solve this problem, will that implicitly mean that I'm already solving other problems as well? Um, or will other people maybe think that solving this problem also settles all sorts of other questions? So for instance, you might think, well, you know, uh, we're coming up with a recidivism risk uh, prediction tool of the kind that we have discussed before. Um, I think most people who have nothing to do with computer science will explicitly believe that a risk assessment in criminal justice is just a risk assessment in criminal justice. It doesn't imply anything else about the people who are being assessed by that tool. But implicitly, because um, you know racial bias is pervasive in society, they might still think, well, you know, now that we know that there's this risky group of people, shouldn't we, you know, be making other decisions about them on the basis of these risk scores? So those would be other decision problems that are technically separate from my initial um, decision task. Um, but given that we have these cognitive biases and stereotypes um, that are pervasive in society, often it's quite hard for us to actually cut up the decision landscape in such a way. Uh, so that's true for the population at large, but of course also true for individual programmers, right? Uh, so getting more clear on what the right problems to solve are, that would be the first step of actually taking responsibility as a programmer. Of course, there's still always this problem of uh, making choices about decision quality that, that do kind of feel like playing God, right? So like, you know, articulating a particular measure of fairness means that you're setting an agenda for fairness. And so I think there the right solution is to actually open up these very early stage design decisions to a more public conversation. So I think my hope long-term is that the population at large will be a little bit more technologically literate in order to actually uh, engage and vote on these issues, right? So it doesn't have to necessarily be... That, that's, the, that's actually the part I would love to follow up mm -hmm. with, with you about because you actually talked about combining 
top-down and bottoms-up uh, approaches mm. in order to reduce the prevalence of um, bias algorithms when making societal decisions. I mean, it's, for example, uh, San Francisco banned sort of facial recognition. So do we need a redesign or revamp of the social and democratic institutions uh, from, from that side of things in order to really deal with this idea of algorithmic decision-making? So we just talked about how programmers sort of kind of has, quote-unquote, play God. Uh, how, how can democratic institutions help in, in this process? So I do think we need to reshape the social and political institutions that uh, we currently have. I think when we try to tackle these early stage design decisions that have this huge uh, social and political weight, um, we shouldn't necessarily jump to an approach that says, oh, let's create a whole bunch of new institutions. So some people have suggested, you know, we should have a... um, you know, office for algorithmic decision-making or like a ministry of AI or something. Um, And so that quickly makes it seem really infeasible and really complex. And, um, you know, it'll be a long way until we actually have those well-functioning, huge new institutions. But of course, democratic life isn't exhausted by mere institutions. Uh, Democratic life is also about participation and public uh, deliberation and public arguing about the kinds of decisions that we want to make. So we we shouldn't view democracy purely as a process that is all about elections, for instance, or about, you know, like civil servants doing their job in institutions. Uh, It's also about having a wider political conversation in society that happens iteratively, right? So uh, I think ideally we should approach a critique of algorithmic decision-making as an ongoing process of public conversation. So right now, a lot of people, as we mentioned before, don't know a whole lot about things like algorithmic fairness measures. But I think more and more, the knowledge that algorithmic decision-making often leads to biased outcomes, for instance, that is kind of trickling down into our public debates. And if that's true, and if democratic citizens regardless of that, to say, well, you know, our hands are clean, we're not going to intervene into this conversation, you know, do we want to continue to deploy a tool that is empirically, observably biased in in a really uh, significant sense? I think that would mean relinquishing what it means to exercise democratic control and to actually you know, use our power as democratic citizens to ensure that the ways in which we shape our uh, social and political life actually lives up to the values that it should. So I think uh, democratic citizens could do and hopefully will do much more to contest um, the use of such tools. We've seen uh, early uh, kind of examples of this kind of bottom-up contestation in some American cities, for instance, particularly in relation to facial recognition technology. Uh, So in San Francisco, for instance, ordinary citizens, but also the local police union had conversations about whether it's appropriate to use a racially biased tool. And so I think it would be good if uh, we as a society had more conversations like that uh, in a domain specific way about other forms of tools. So, for instance, should we be allocating school spots? via these tools? Should we be allocating welfare benefits via these tools? All of these are conversations that I think are going to happen more and more, and that will be a democratic benefit. And it doesn't require 
the creation of a really complex top-down institution, even though I think uh, these top-down approaches could supplement uh, and secure those bottom-up processes. So ultimately what we also need is kind of tangible legal regulation. Uh, we can democratically contest things all we want, but if there's no legal security, that's actually not going to uh, protect the interests of those that are most vulnerable in society to these forms of bias. I'm, I'm just curious about um, when it comes to these bottom-up democratic processes, are you concerned about, because I know you speak about the issue of automation bias, right? The idea that mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, we tend to trust machines and, and trust automation um, and, and, and pretty uh, shocking and, and unreasonable ways. And we don't see that in just in AI. We see that in social media, all sorts of things. And, right. Um, so, so I think when it comes to that, perhaps something like facial recognition, which affects people extremely broadly, maybe that's an issue that the public really takes up. But it comes, if it comes to something like the criminal justice system, um, then I think the concern is if that doesn't affect a small segment of the population, maybe the automation bias um, will result in people actually democratically voting for AI takeover. Um, and, I, and I think it's concerning because I think in general, people don't like to make decisions. And so you know, outsourcing a decision mm-hmm. to a sort of an auto- automated process might actually be a, uh, a, a thing that, pe- that people find appealing. So is this kind of a concern that, that comes up when, when we talk about um, dealing with issues of AI and society from a bottom-up approach? Mm. I think that's absolutely correct. So I think very often automation bias is a huge roadblock to successful democratic deliberation on these issues. Um, I think, again, that's where the decision landscape issue becomes really important. So, for instance, uh, in thinking about the criminal justice case, it's true that many citizens will just think, oh, well, that doesn't really affect me. And it looks like if I have a human judge making a kind of predictive judgment about recidivism risk, uh, you know, that judge is going to be biased. We have plenty of empirical evidence on you know, if the, if the judge hasn't had lunch, uh, he's or she is going to be more grumpy in his or her assessment of the criminal uh, offender. So there's a lot of inconsistency uh, with the human uh, decision maker. Meanwhile, maybe if we can marginally improve the quality of our decision making by automating it, even if there's still some form of bias, maybe we should just do that. And I think, especially if a citizen kind of thinks, well, you know, I better not touch this too much. I I don't really want to have anything to do with criminal justice policy. Um, I think they're likely to say, oh, yeah, sure, let's just outsource this to a a machine learning tool. Um, But again, if we bring it to the forefront of people's minds that the decision landscape in this particular case also involves larger scale social and institutional reforms, such as thinking hard about mandatory minimum sentencing or thinking hard about, you know, do we really need to have such a high incarceration rate? Should we maybe aim to decrease that? And do we actually need to use AI for that purpose? Uh, What are our non-algorithmic ways of tackling facets of this problem uh, that become apparent when we try to deal with things like recidivism risks? Or should we have rehabilitation programs or something like that? So, of course, one possible decision problem is let's predict recidivism risk. But we also have to be mindful of the fact that part of our decision landscape would involve just lowering recidivism rates by adopting various uh, non-algorithmic measures. And so I think that is something that can be communicated to a wider democratic constituency and hopefully will be over time, 
that doesn't actually require extremely in-depth uh, statistical and mathematical knowledge, right? So I think it's a more value-based conversation um, about which kinds of problems we actually want to tackle or what we define as a problem in the first place. So that, that brings up another interesting issue um, about, you know, you spoke about making these judgments at an, at an early stage in the development of the algorithm. Um, and, and I think the, one question that, I, that that brings up for me is, is it actually fundamentally possible to ask what we call these ex-ante questions about a technology, sort of questions before the technology is actually deployed about how it will be used and what the effects will be, especially given you know, how fast technology is progressing these days, um, it, it seems really difficult to have the prescience to argue that a technology will be used in this way um, and it'll have these effects and, and this is harmful or this is good. And, you know, a classic example would be Facebook being used to manipulate the 2016 election, which pretty much nobody foresaw. Um, and so, you know, given that it is, is it cynical or maybe is it even just accurate to say that you can only really know about the impact of a technology after it's deployed? And, and with that question, how does that affect the discourse about saying, let's have discussions about this technology at a very early stage? rather than at a later stage after it's deployed and we see its effects? Hmm. I think that's a really deep uh, philosophical question, actually. So I think it requires getting clear on what uncertainty is in the first place and whether all forms of uncertainty are equally worrisome. Uh, so it is true that in many cases, there are some genuinely unforeseeable effects of technology. Um, I think people vastly overestimate the extent to which bad outcomes of contemporary forms of machine learning and algorithmic decision-making are genuinely unforeseeable in the same way that an accident or a fluke would be genuinely unforeseeable. So I think very often we have some data that we can use to make predictive judgments about what the likely risks involved um, in particular forms of deployment are. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that our impact assessment ex ante will be entirely accurate, but it's not like we know nothing. Uh, so I think that suggests to me that actually we can think about uncertainty as a productive tool. We can say, well, we're going to make an ex ante evaluation and we might still you know, choose to deploy this particular tool after we've thought long and hard about you know, the, the kind of problem that we're trying to solve with this and what the values are that we want to optimize for. Uh, ideally, we've also thought about the concepts that we've engineered. Hopefully, those are concepts that don't replicate uh, inequalities, but that are actually construed in a way that could ameliorate society um, and the kinds of structures of inequality that we have in society. Um, and we might then say, hang on, now that we've deployed this tool, we are actually seeing outcomes that we didn't quite anticipate on this form. Let's recalibrate now. Let's have an iterative process uh, of evaluation here. And let's try to mitigate the, the path that we're on. So it could be that you know we're currently um, embarking on a path that doesn't really reflect and represent what we want to represent. It doesn't really lead to a pattern that we want to replicate in society. But then we can always choose to change, right? So I think very often um, people work with this assumption that either we have an ex ante judgment call and then nothing, or we just wait and see what happens. And then ex post, we say, oh, well, that was good, or well, that was bad. So neither of those views is plausible in my mind. We can always engage in iterative contestation and we can say, actually, 
the fact that we're allowing ourselves to be uncertain about our judgment is really productive because it leaves open the possibility that we can acknowledge to ourselves, hey, we were wrong in defining the problem in these particular ways. And in fact, in order to have a good machine learning system, we need to factor in these previously unforeseen uh, factors. So I think uh, computer science, uh, particularly the theory of computing, uh, has really useful insights uh, for this kind of philosophical debate on what uncertainty really is that I think are underappreciated, but hopefully will be subject to more interdisciplinary engagement in the future. Uh, so for instance, both computer scientists and uh, statisticians kind of have this well-known slogan that all models are wrong, right? So that, that's a kind of unsettling claim. But what it means is all models abstract from the social reality Right, the messy kind of complexity of our world in various ways in order to be able to come up with a workable model. Right, So we always need to abstract and idealize in some way. Uh, and the hope is, well, hopefully we're going to come up with a good enough idealization that still explains the things that we want to explain. And so in evaluating whether actually um, you know, the degree of uncertainty that we're allowing for in our evaluation of algorithmic models, uh, whether that degree of uncertainty is okay, I think we actually have to ask the deeper question, are we constructing a model that is maybe wrong, but you know, not wrong enough to actually warrant something like non-deployment, right? So I think we have to be mindful of crossing that border between a wrongful but useful model somehow, or like a, a somewhat inaccurate abstraction, that it's still somehow faithful enough to the real world that it explains some really useful things. Um, and by contrast, having a model that spins out so much from our social life and our social reality that it's just not useful anymore, even if it's a really well-calibrated and kind of well-functioning model. Hmm. I think another issue that, that comes up, this is a fascinating discussion, another issue that comes up um, is with regards to both the usefulness of a model as well as how well can we evaluate it both ex ante and ex post is how explainable is it. Um, and right. so this, this uh, especially with today's most advanced AI deep learning based systems are, are considered black boxes in the sense that they can't really explain their decision making process in the same way that earlier more simple uh, models could. Um, so this is interesting because uh, a lot of people have people have sort of instinctive objections to having decisions about them being made by an algorithm, especially if the algorithm isn't explainable. And so there was, a, in fact, there was a court case, Loomis versus Wisconsin, where um, the defendant sued because the I think it was it was Compass actually that uh, was not able to explain its its decision making process, and the defendant was arguing that um, that lack of explainability violated uh, the defendant's due process. Uh, so. You know, is explainability always a good thing? Um, what issues does lack of explainability bring up with regards to um, democratic values like equality and justice? Like, you know, or do we consider it maybe more of a violation of civil liberties if the algorithm is not able to explain? So I guess how do we, in, in this sort of broader context of algorithmic decision-making, algorithmic injustice, how do we understand uh, where explainability fits in? It's a really complex question. I think one intuitive worry about unexplainable AI uh, is that it's often unclear 
which options are even on the table. So I think one of the reasons why people worry so much about AI and machine learning in particular is that the kind of option space or the range of available options, that is what is really opaque. So it's not only that we don't know what sorts of probabilities are attached to one particular outcome, right? So uh, of course that's a worry, right? Like I, as an individual, often want to know with what probability will I receive this outcome or this other outcome? Uh, so for instance, will this credit scoring tool place me in this category or this one? Can I change my behavior somehow to avoid a really you know, harmful outcome here? Um, and I might want explainability for those reasons. Uh, but further, I might not even know which categories are even operational in the system. Uh, we can contrast these contemporary forms of machine learning with much earlier forms of automation where we really didn't have these kinds of worries. So think about the earliest forms of robots. Uh, so computer scientists call them finite state automata. They call them uh, that because those early forms of robots had a finite and predetermined and totally transparent range of available outcomes. So whenever I use such an early uh, form of automation, I know what can happen, right? So I might not know what the possible, what the probabilities are that attach, are attached to each option, uh, but I'm not going to be surprised in a really fundamental way. So these are forms of automation, by the way, that reach back uh, much, much longer than I think most people appreciate. Um, we have archival data from, you know, uh, Turkish inventors uh, working in the 12th century and coming up with early forms of uh, robotics. So this is not something that is totally new to human life. It's just that with the wake of artificial intelligence and machine learning, we're just seeing a, an expansion of the range of available options and opacity on that issue, uh, I think is really what unsettles people. Uh, I also think though that we shouldn't assume that explanation would resolve all normative worries that we might have about AI. So think about a case where, um, and actually think about a non-AI case for a second. Uh, let's say I you know, walk through a coffee shop and I start knocking over everybody's coffee cups just you know randomly. Uh, that's very strange behavior. And I think most people would ask me, hey Annette, why did you destroy this coffee shop? Um, and maybe I have a really good explanation. Uh, you know, I might think, well, ugh, this coffee's poison, or you know, people should drink less coffee, that's bad for you. And when asked, I could give that explanation. Uh, you know, here's the deal, I, I saved you from drinking too much coffee, you're welcome. Uh, that's not going to fly as a good justification, though. So I think many uh, cases in which we want an explanation uh, for a decision-making outcome, including an algorithmic decision-making outcome, is actually a situation where we also want to have a plausible justification. So why was it good that we reached that outcome and not the other one? Um, and so that, then suddenly we're dealing with a really different concern. So explanation might be necessary for achieving a plausible justification, but it's not going to be sufficient. So there's many other things we need to achieve. And again, they would probably require a public democratic conversation uh, rather than a purely uh, kind of technological articulation of how that system worked. On the flip side, though, uh, sometimes I think an explanation can also be counterproductive. 
it could be counterproductive in cases in which giving an explanation leads to uh, expressivist harm. That's a philosophical term for, um, you know, a kind of disrespectful statement. So, for instance, think about, you know, machine learning tools that are just impossible to uh, optimize for fairness. Um, if we adopt the same decision rule for all members of all social demographic groups. So very often that is the case in supervised um, so, uh, machine learning systems where uh, I have really good calibration. So my model uh, you know, gives us a really faithful representation of the real world, including all of the disparities and inequalities in it. Um, and so then uh, if I adopt the same rule for uh, men and women or for black people and white people, uh, it is very likely that even if I make my system race blind and gender blind, it's going to pick up correlations and kind of historical artifacts of inequality um, in a way that leads to really bad outcomes. So one solution to that, of course, could be to have different decision rules for different groups in order to mitigate these effects. But then uh, that would involve saying publicly, okay, so for men, we're going to have this decision rule in our algorithmic system, and for women, we're going to have this uh, decision rule. So, of course, there might be cases in which we should still do that if all things considered, the benefits of having different decision rules across different groups um, is just really good in terms of optimizing for justice. But I think there is some at least minor cost attached to expressing and uh, explaining uh, these kinds of different rules that might apply to different groups and individuals. And so that's something that I think is often quite underappreciated. Just to clarify a little bit about the expressivist harm concept that you just brought up, are you saying that even uh, if it becomes possible to sometimes optim optimize for fairness for certain algorithms or machine learning tools, and even if we end up doing so, there's still other inherent costs that such processes bear uh, that, that our society might not be able to appreciate. Right, yes. Right. So there might be different ways of treating people fairly. One of them might be to not express disrespect or to communicate that, you know, uh, different rules apply to different people, for instance. But another uh, measure of fairness, of course, is having really good outcomes across different groups. So uh, I think we need to weigh those different meanings of what fairness is against each other. Well, I guess that, that really touches on the uh, debate, a sort of a more philosophical debate uh, in general in terms of daily life interactions. That, that totally makes sense. It, it sounds to me that are, are you slightly more pessimistic in the sense that uh, do you think uh, algor like what role do you think algorithms actually have to play in reducing a bias? Uh, we probably should have asked you this much earlier as we, we <laughs> talked about what algorithmic bias really is. So, you know, is the notion that they are more neutral and, and objective, is this notion kind of flawed in the sense that, sure, there are cases where algorithms might, might actually reduce bias, such as, you know, fintech algorithms discriminate less than traditional lenders or something, but, but ultimately saying... Um, they, they they might still be be more biased inherently in, in some way, or or induce more social costs as we implement them. What, what do you think of this? So again, I think it doesn't make sense to uh, adopt a kind of blanket condemnation of all possible forms of machine learning and AI. 
Um, I'm very optimistic that there might be some really useful uh, areas for deploying AI and machine learning, but I also think it's really important uh, to identify where that isn't the case. Um, I think that uh, one way in which adopting any rule-governed system, including um, an algorithmic decision-making system, one way in which that might be really good is it might help us ensure greater consistency across cases. So very often, we're not actually concerned about getting judgments or getting assessments um, that are really tailored to us as individual people. What we really care about, I think, is that somebody who's uh, engaging in similar behavior and who's in other respects relevantly similar to us will receive similar treatment. In the philosophy of law, that is known as the like cases maxim. So it's just the view that, you know, treat like cases alike and treat unlike cases differently. Um, so I think that kind of consistency really matters to us on an intuitive level. Uh, of course, we also think that sometimes contextual features, um, you know, kind of mitigating circumstances also need to be taken into account. So a very rigid rule governed system uh, might make it quite hard to engage in this context-specific mitigation. So again, this is where the costs of AI come in. But that doesn't mean that uh, optimizing for consistency isn't something to be, uh, to be celebrated, right? So I think um, ensuring that we actually um, have patterns that are demonstrably uh, more equal, at least in some way, across different individuals and groups, that could be a really positive feature of AI, at least in some domains. The question is just, in which domains is it possible to get the system to stop replicating uh, whatever historical inequalities we find? So I think maybe one uh, better way of thinking about that is not uh, where is AI going to be less objectionable? It's more about how can we improve our social and political life, right? So how can we fix those social and political inequalities um, in order to be able to apply these, these norms uh, of consistency across cases and these kinds of conceptions of fairness properly, right? So we currently can't actually implement this norm of consistency in any feasible way, because again, we're, we're starting from a baseline of extreme and pervasive inequality, but that's not AI's fault, right? Uh, so, so that's a social problem that we need to address at the same time while, uh, you know, trying to improve AI. So I, I guess one, one thing that, so um, one thing that I, I think about is that can AI actually be used as an agent for reducing social inequality, right? So I think um, it, it seems to me that part of what you're saying is that, okay, so it depend, really depends on the domain that you're, um, that you're applying AI to. And in some domains, it may be possible or, or even probable that AI creates a huge positive impact. In some domains, it's much harder, if not impossible, for AI to, to sort of work with the current social mechanisms and the current data to, to create socially positive outcomes. Um, so, you know, for example, in criminal justice, which is an issue in, in which it seems AI creates negative outcomes as used now, like, is it pretty much, can we just write off AI now and say, okay, well, we really can't do anything until the system itself improves. So let's give it another 50, 60 years and then apply AI again. Or can, is there ways that 
AI can be used to sort of actively improve the systems as they are right now. Um, and so we, so because otherwise it, we're kind of just saying, okay, we got to just wait until it, it, until things are better. Um, so what role do you see like the actual AI playing in, in, in improving these systems in, in socially beneficial ways? So I think there's at least two ways in which AI can improve criminal justice processes in particular. Uh, one of them is um, a kind of path that views AI as a heuristic device for identifying the kinds of inequalities that are socially created and politically created that we need to fix. So of course, working with big data sets uh, enables us to identify patterns that are harmful. Um, and much like people are automation biased about AI and can, uh, are more prone to viewing it as objective, that is something that could be useful here in the sense of um, once we have data and numbers that show very clearly that there are patterns of massive unjust disadvantage, um, that is something that could be politically quite powerful because it might be more persuasive uh, to people. And of course, the cost attached to that is um, deploying AI for purely heuristic purposes while we know that it amplifies structures of inequality would basically mean saying for the greater good or for a long-term benefit, which would be to eradicate or at least mitigate inequality somehow, we're going to consciously and deliberately impose unequal outcomes on people here and now, right? So the question is, are we trading off this future benefit against this kind of certain harm that we're currently imposing on people? So I think, again, that's why it's a really uh, tricky political question and a tricky moral question. But it is true that there is something to be gained from actually engaging with the data that we currently have, which shows very clearly that uh, structural forms of oppression uh, are really pervasive. I think another interesting way of thinking about AI being useful in the, the criminal justice space um, is to kind of turn our lens or our focus on not necessarily criminals themselves, but also just patterns of policing uh, more generally, uh, I recently learned about a very interesting art project by an art collective in Vienna. And their idea was, uh, let's have uh, an AI tool that shows us a map of Vienna. And instead of uh, showing us high risk zones, like uh, tools like predictive uh, or PredPol, so, which is short for predictive policing, like those tools do, uh, Let's instead have a map where people can report a high frequency of um, aggressive and violent interactions with uh, police, right? So people could report um, instances of uh, profiling or uh, an increased activity of stop and frisk policies in a particular area. Uh, and I thought it was a really interesting idea to think about using AI uh, not only as a tool to identify risky criminals, um, but also and maybe primarily to identify behavior by law enforcement that uh, exacerbates these problems. So 
again, it's, it's, it's not true that all forms of AI are going to have the same harmful effects. Uh, I think sometimes it can be really productive to just kind of question, you know, in which domains do we want to use predictive tools? Uh, it might be very insightful to use them uh, in some areas, including criminal justice. So we, we kind of spent a lot of time kind of talking about algorithms and, and its intersection with some of the philosophical, political philosophy debates. And uh, you actually wrote a piece identifying some of the common traps that people fall into when discussing the term uh, AI ethics. So you, you wrote this article called AI Ethics, uh, Seven Traps, and, and you identified some of those traps. Would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, what you wrote there, how they've sort of manifested themselves in public discourse? Right. So I think one really common misconception that my work aims to debunk is that ethics is just a kind of matter of personal opinion. I think a lot of people uh, might not know that ethics is actually a branch of philosophy. Um, I think a lot of people think of ethics as basically, you know, pretty vague statements of personal opinions um, you know, it could be something like your political or religious beliefs. And I think a lot of people, therefore, think that all ethical arguments are fundamentally relative, right? So um, I think the toy version of ethics is basically, well, you think this and you think this, there's no possible way in which we could resolve this ethical disagreement. So I don't think that's true. I think that there are some arguments um, that involve ethical reasoning that are clearly inconsistent and implausible, right? So there might, of course, be cases in which we have competing ethical values uh, and it's hard to properly rank them on one singular metric. But at the same time, we can at least exclude some clearly morally and politically repugnant arguments. Uh, it's not the case that all possible uh, forms of ethical reasoning are equally persuasive. Um, and so I think it's really important to question this assumption that all ethical reasoning, including reasoning about AI, is just fundamentally vague and unhelpful in this way and kind of relative to a personal standpoint. I also think some other traps have been really harmful in this area. So I think some people think of um, AI ethics as essentially a substitute for legal regulation. Because a lot of people are obviously keenly aware that legal regulation is lagging behind, right? So there is a legal vacuum. So I think some people think, well, okay, at least, you know, let's articulate some ethical values that should guide us here until we've actually successfully regulated the space. And then to make matters worse, uh, many people seem to think, uh, well, as soon as we have legally regulated AI, who the hell needs ethics? I mean, ethics just is this fluffy concept that isn't really action guiding or binding. So I think both views are wrong. I think ethics and the law are domains that intersect, but that are ultimately distinct. Ethics guides are um, kind of normative reasoning. Um, whereas the law is a kind of politically uh, created concept. So with the law, we're obviously regulating some issues that are of moral concern, but many laws have no uh, direct connection to moral uh, issues 
in any capacity, right? So why do we have traffic lights? Not because we think it's morally wrong not to have traffic lights. Uh, of course, if we had a lot of accidents, that would create moral problems. Um, but the point is that we can very often adopt legal regulation for things that aren't morally laden uh, in this very thick sense. But of course, um, we do have some laws, for instance, you know, murder is illegal, which clearly have a very, very intuitive moral content, right? Because the underpinning moral view is killing is wrong. Um, so I think it's helpful to keep ethics and the law mentally distinct. Uh, here, I think ethical reasoning about AI needs to happen even in the absence of legal regulation. But at the same time, we shouldn't view ethics as a substitute for the law. Hmm. So practically speaking, if we're kind of going to disambiguate between ethics and the legal system with regards to AI. Uh, practically speaking, what do you see as the role that ethics plays uh, in assessing and developing AI systems? Where are we lacking right now? And in particular, since the most advanced systems are really being developed in corporate settings, um, you know, for example, Google is, is, is a, probably the leader in, in AI development. Um, you know, they released a code of AI ethics. Um, it's as you know, you alluded to uh, before, sort of a, a very vague and, and perhaps a meaningless set of principles that are perhaps contradictory. Um, and so do those go far enough at all? Are they effectively meaningless? And, and how, how do corporations uh, maybe, and, and, and again, how do any, any, any entity that develops AI, how do, how do they go about developing AI in an ethical way? Um, and how do they develop actionable um, and not sort of mutually contradictory principles? that they can use to guide their development of AI systems? I think that ethics codes and um, things like a Hippocratic oath for AI uh, are meaningless if and only if uh, they're in fact just purely voluntarily um, enforceable, right? So uh, if it's just about coming up with a list of things that you know we think are kind of nice, and we're going to try our best to somehow realize those things. But, you know, if we fail, there's no, there's no way of enforcing that, uh, either legally or politically. Um, then I think uh, it becomes really meaningless, right? So if I can voluntarily buy into some set of values, but nobody's going to blame me if I just fail, um, that looks like a pretty toothless conception of ethical reasoning about AI. But I do think that um, ethics codes and Hippocratic oaths could play a useful role in terms of getting people to think about their own responsibility and to think about the values that they think apply to them. I think the key thing then is to have a conversation between different people who are involved in designing and deploying these systems and the uh, kind of democratic constituency at large. Um, about whether those are in fact the right values. But I mean, it's important uh, kind of early stage work to clarify which values we think guide us uh, ourselves and to share that with others and to make that open to kind of public uh, critique. Um, but yes, I think it doesn't go far enough if that's all we do, that would be a clearly flawed approach. Uh, that combined with the fact that, um, you know, the major tech corporations, um, just have such an incredible amount of power, uh, which is almost monopolistic in some areas. Um, then if the only fix is to adopt a voluntary uh, model of ethics, 
that's unfortunately not going to cut it. <laughs> so do we need to hire more ethicists? Like, does Google need to hire more ethicists? Like, <laughs> do you think that would be a good place so, to start maybe? Many tech corporations are hiring trained moral and political philosophers. Uh, so I think that's a very positive development. Um, I think that still doesn't resolve the issue because ultimately I think what needs to happen is uh, individuals without deep philosophical training need to think of themselves as agents who make ethically salient choices. Um, so not everybody needs to study moral philosophy, um, but I think everybody needs to see themselves as a person who has an ethical impact in some way. So most, if not all, choices that we make have some sort of normative baggage as well. Um, and so hiring an AI ethicist in a tech corporation shouldn't suggest to people that they're going to be in charge of all of the ethics and you know the rest is off the hook. That's a really dangerous way of thinking, especially if it's coupled with a slogan like, you know, move fast and break things, because uh, if you move fast and break things and then you ask later, oh, but was that ethical? And you kind of conclude, oh, well, maybe not. Um, then you've achieved just nothing. You've just uh, brought about terrible outcomes. You're not accountable. And in fact, because you're so powerful, nobody can hold you accountable. So that would be exactly the wrong way of going about this. Well, it really sounds like a really utopian vision that everybody could treat themselves as, or see themselves as this moral agent that all their actions have moral consequences. I don't know. It's, I mean, if you look at a place like China, you know, people don't even think about some of those issues that we talk about, right? Data privacy, you know, like giving up their contacts to WeChat and things like that. And at least I think in the U.S. there's a little bit more discourse. Uh, we have scholars like you who who really write and think about those really important issues. But I feel like in so many regions, everybody's talking about move fast and break things. Mm. So and, and to really let people see themselves as, you know, morally capable and culpable agents, uh, th that sounds really hard. Mm -hmm. I do like the phrasing um, of morally capable and culpable, though. I think that's very catchy. <laughs> um, and that, 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 exactly. That's uh, what yeah. I want to say. I mean, I think that's, uh, that's certainly an ideal. Now, of course, another question is whether uh, we will achieve moral ideals perfectly. Chances are we're not going to achieve ideals perfectly. That's why there are ideals. The question is, what, what should guide us in our decision-making, right? Like, what's our aspiration? What's our intention? Um, and so I think if the choice is between saying, we're going to think hard about the ideals that guide us when we uh, design and deploy AI, or we're just going to give up and like not even try to articulate ethical ideals in this domain because we think it's just more important to you know, disrupt and innovate as fast as we can. And we also think that, you know, us as individuals can't just make a difference, you know, like it's too hard to be this morally capable and culpable agent, as you rightly say. Um, if that's the two choices that we have, then we should pick the first one. We should say, okay, let's at least try to have a conversation about the ideals that we want to aspire to, allowing and knowing full well uh, that a perfect realization of many of those ethical ideals is not going to be fully possible. Uh, I actually would love to follow up on that really quickly because Arjun and I had this uh, 
debate a couple months ago whether there should be a government agency kind of like the FDA mm-hmm. that approves some of the AI algorithms or or uh, such like that. You know, you you submit your app or something to this government agency, and then they tell you after like five months of review whether you need to fix things or not. And we're doing and, clinical trials um, as well. I kinda, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think I tend to adopt the view of, you know, negative utilitarianism sometimes, which is basically, it's less about utility maximization, but sometimes about harm minimization. Mm-hmm. Um, and Arjun was saying, but yeah, but th- that doesn't really make sense. You're saying that we would, if there's a, tr- a drug or an app that could save hundreds or thousands of, of lives, but then because of this one little thing, you just wouldn't approve it, um, w- wouldn't that be bad? And, and my argument would be saying, yeah, but but you don't know what that impact would be, what that outcome may be. So um, especially when, when it comes to not just AI, we, we, if we talk about things like gene editing and things like that, I mean, sure, it could save lives, but the it kind of it's like a Pandora box, but I don't know. So uh, w- w- what are your thoughts on, on those things? Well, I think it's a really good question, Tiger. I really like the idea of uh, an FDA for algorithms, even though, again, I think that would be necessary for improving things, but maybe not sufficient. Uh, I also think a really complicated question is how trustworthy a given government is. So obviously, there's a huge range of different levels of trustworthiness and accountability between different uh, governments. Um, and so that might determine whether we think actually we're happy to give state governments a lot of democratic control um, over what is allowed to go forward and what isn't. Uh, there might be some political situations in which actually a private corporation is more accountable than a government. So I think we have to weigh those uh, against each other, those, those two concerns. Uh, I think also the uh, distinction between harm minimization uh, and kind of utility maximization is really interesting and important. Uh, obviously, again, there might be pure uncertainty cases where it's really hard to make an anti-judgment call in which we might decide to experiment. Uh, so it might be a kind of high risk, high reward scenario, and that might be okay in some domains. Uh, so for instance, um, if we think, you know, this particular medical AI application might turn out to be just deeply inaccurate, but if it works, it's going to really save millions, uh, then, you know, it, it might be okay to test it and deploy it and to move forward with it. Um, but again, I think uh, people overestimate the degree to which um, we're just really unsure about uh, the risks involved in a particular tool. So very often um, we can say quite a lot more than we think we can say about the system. Um, And so that might allow us to at least articulate a minimum threshold of desiderata for a system. So we might not be able to predict the full impact of a system, but we might think, well, if it's just based on really offensive categories, no matter how accurate it is, we're not going to use it. So I want to give you one concrete example just to kind of illustrate where we might say that. So um, you know that algorithmic decision-making is used a lot in credit scoring, right? And so very recently, um, there was a study um, funded by the U.S. government, actually, 
um, that showed which categories underpin the tools used by data broker firms. And so one of the tools uh, that was being used in the US had categories like uh, extra needy. So X uh, and then hyphen TRA um, or uh, ethnic uh, and rural city strugglers was another category. A lot of these categories just strike us uh, as kind of intuitively disrespectful. Now, it might be true that the system that was being deployed actually managed to make really accurate predictions about who's going to default on a loan and who isn't. I mean, we could assume that for the sake of the argument. Like, let's assume that we can actually optimize the, the decision quality of that system really well. We might still say, though, irrespective of whether we think that, you know, this might be a high risk, high reward situation, like it might actually really like, you know, lead to positive outcomes in the sense of, you know, it might help us be more accurate. Um, the system itself has objectionable features that fall short of uh, the kind of bare minimum that we think that the system should meet. So if that's the case, I think that would warrant a more precautionary approach or even a non-deployment approach uh, where minimizing harm actually means holding back innovation until we've addressed those minimum uh, threshold criteria. Where that isn't the case, I think we can be more innovation friendly. Yeah, I, I think maybe another uh, sort of framework that we could use to think about this sort of minimum uh, threshold idea is that uh, it's like executing a trade, right? Let's say I'm a trader on Wall Street, and there's this opportunity that I can win really, really big, uh, and I and I bet a lot of my money on it. I, I think it's fine for you to do that as long as you know under which scenarios your trade could go wrong, mm -hmm. and how you can immediately pull out of the trade uh, if the 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 loss gets to a certain threshold. And I think a lot of traders end up blowing up, meaning they lose so much money that they couldn't recover from precisely because they don't really foresee the scenario how their trade could go wrong uh, and they don't really have a backup plan. So maybe we could say for a case, I, I don't know what Arjun has to say about this thing, so feel free to chime in. But but what if you could say this thing has the potential of saving hundreds of millions of lives, so let's just do it, but under a slightly more controlled environment in the sense that we know we envision a couple scenarios how it could go wrong. And if it were to go wrong, we, we immediately pull it back. I don't, I don't know if that's realistic anymore, I, I, honestly. Well, I, mean, yeah. I, I think it's, it's to Dr. Zimmerman's point, right? So, sorry, I, I was just, I think it's to your point that um, maybe it's not true that we can't foresee uh, what a technology can create. Right? I think it, maybe that we have a certain idea that, um, at least this is an idea that that I generally hold, but but maybe have been convinced to to reevaluate that um, that technology proceeds so fast that we just are not able to understand what the impact of a technology could be. And so perhaps it is it is important. I think maybe yeah, maybe, uh, objectively speaking, it certainly seems important that we really deeply consider what effects this technology can have. Um, and uh, I think again. While it's important to consider those things, um, it, those will make those, so the, those will influence design choices that will affect other parts of the technology, right? And so um, I still do think, with regards to making changes due to possibilities that could happen, um, it seems to make more sense to me that we have ideas of what those changes could look like and we execute on those changes in the 
event that these possibilities happen. Um, but I, I do I do think that there's a there's the 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 flip side risk of being too cautious, um, and and then as a result, um, not really pushing things and, and and kind of changing things the way that you can. So so I, I like I think you have to strike a balance somewhere and. It, it neither lies on complete harm minimization or sort of complete utility maximization. That's kind of my take. I agree with that. So I think it's very important to avoid an extreme precautionary principle. Uh, that doesn't mean that in some domains we can't say just don't deploy, right? So again, we need to be domain specific in our judgment. So we might say, let's not use facial recognition for this particular purpose. So for instance, let's not use facial recognition on college campuses as many institutions do right now, or let's not use facial recognition in immigration enforcement. Um, but in other domains, we might say, well, let's not actually be that cautious about using this particular technology to solve this particular task. Let's actually see if you know, this might turn out to be immensely beneficial. So I think as long as we're nuanced in that judgment, uh, that is much more plausible, and that can happen even if we don't have a full picture of the available outcomes, right? So computer scientists distinguish between an intentional specification of a decision rule and an extensional one. So you can think about the intentional dimension as just a, a kind of general articulation of an algorithmic rule. Like This is how, in general, it's going to solve problems. Uh, and the extensional specification would look at concrete applications and kind of edge cases, and it would stipulate, okay, this is what happens in this particular instance, and this is what happens in that other particular instance. Now, we might many times have the former, but not the latter. So we might have a kind of general picture of how our system works, including the categories that underpin it and the kind of variables that are um, you know, relevant for my system, um, but I might not have a full picture of all possible scenarios uh, that crop up in deployment. And that's okay, right? So we don't always need that very complete picture. And in fact, that's unrealistic, even in non-AI decision-making, right? So as human decision-makers, we also don't have this, this you know, highly complex and incredibly complete picture. Um, so I think, again, what matters is that we're open to revising our judgments. So if it does turn out that there's an unanticipated harm, you know, uh, I, I think we just need to be open to saying, actually, let's walk this back. Uh, let's not burden people with, you know, tinkering with this technology and like experimenting on, on it and, you know, trying to mitigate it while we're still deploying it. Like, let's actually pause it. Uh, so I think that kind of thinking should be more popular uh, or more uh, often used. Um, but I think as long as we're, we're flexible in that way, um, that will vastly improve the ways in which we interact with technology. That, that totally makes sense. I think, uh, you know, we, we've already talked so long about this thing, but I forgot to ask you, I guess, a more fundamental question about what, what do you, the field that you study, because I, I think that, um, you know, I don't do AI research, but I've taken some philosophy classes at Princeton and, you know, philosophy and ethics studies, related to AI seem to be a fairly recent and emerging field to me. So, you know, how would you actually characterize the, the field that, that you are studying right now? Is it sort of independent from other philosophical branches, like, you know, the, the more traditional categories that we know, like moral philosophy or epistemology, uh, or, or it's more of an interdisciplinary sort of endeavor? So I would love to 
to hear your thoughts on the, the sort of epistemological basis and explanatory tools that you use when conducting uh, normative research uh, on, on AI. Mm. So I think that other branches of philosophy that have nothing to do with value theory, so for instance, social, political, moral, and legal philosophy, uh, have been more early adopters uh, of uh, these kinds of questions that have to do with AI. So philosophers of mind, uh, epistemologists, and to some extent metaphysicians um, have asked interesting questions about the nature of artificial intelligence. So is it possible to have an artificial mind? Uh, what would it mean to have an artificial agent? Uh, these kinds of questions I think are really important and interesting. Um, but I think there is a current uh, wave that focuses more on these political and moral questions in addition now. So that is a relatively new development in my mind. I think here, moral and political philosophers are trying to draw on other kind of larger debates in the field. So for instance, democratic theory gives us a lot of resources um, to think about collective decision-making and things like legitimacy and justification and power. And so one might think that actually those philosophical concepts might shed light on the kinds of normative questions that crop up uh, in relation to AI. Similarly, moral philosophy debates on the ethics of imposing risks on others, I think, are deeply relevant. So that's um, kind of the inspiration for much of my own current research in combination with the more political questions. So I think there's a lot of movement in that debate right now, but it is a fairly recent development. Uh, I think it's also uh, complemented nicely with a, a similar trend in computer science where many computer scientists are increasingly open to these ethical um, discussions. So there's more and more collaborations between uh, people who do applied statistics, applied mathematics, computer science with philosophers uh, and other people in humanities and social sciences. So I think that is fantastic and will actually drive that field forward. Um, I also think it's uh, nice to circle back to early stage computer science work that has always attempted to speak to philosophers. So that seminal paper that Alan Turing wrote in 1950, for instance, um, I think it was called Computing Machinery and Intelligence. Um, so that was one of the earliest uh, descriptions of the imitation game. Uh, that was published in the journal Mind, which is one of the top philosophy journals. Um, so I think this field has always been interdisciplinary. It has always had to be interdisciplinary. Um, and more and more, we're actually integrating these ethical branches of philosophy into it now, which I think is is really necessary and urgent. You certainly have done like such a wonderful job, kind of giving our listeners an overview of the field and and the sort of the connection between um, pre other previous works in, in philosophy and some of the more current urgent debates uh, facing our society related to AI today. So we've already talked for like two hours, so I kind of want to quickly wrap up here. <laughs> Um, you know, since the, the name of our show is, is Policy Punchline, I want to ask you at the end, what's your policy punchline here? What's the punchline? It could be for anything, for, for AI, for philosophy, for any of the topics that we've sort of covered. Mm. I think my policy punchline is the algorithmic is political. Um, it's the title of the book that I'm currently working on, but I think it's also a slogan that 
people who work in the tech industry should adopt and be aware of. Um, the algorithmic is political because design choices have political and so social baggage. Um, we can't get ethics and politics out of algorithmic design, and that's necessarily going to trickle down into the technologies that we do, in fact, develop and deploy. Um, so rather than pretending that algorithms are this domain of value freeness and objectivity, I think it's important to just acknowledge that all human life and all human decision making is permeated by these political and social and moral concepts. And so then the question for us is, how can we redefine those concepts and how can we redefine the decision problems that we want to tackle in a way that actually improves society, right? So, I mean, I'm thinking back here to um, a very well-known statement by Ada Lovelace, who of course was one of the pioneers um, in this research area. So Ada Lovelace was a tech optimist. Ada Lovelace uh, said, well, uh, the analytical engine is essentially like a jackward loom, right? Like one of those weaving machines. So in her view, she said, uh, the analytical engine just weaves patterns like flowers and leaves. And she thought that was incredibly amazing and beautiful. She really saw that potential. And I think one question for us to think about is, given that we can weave these patterns by using these automated tools, what patterns do we actually want to weave, right? So how can we see and define concepts and problems in a way that ameliorates our social condition rather than rendering it more and more unequal? I think you uh, gave us a lot of very encouraging and positive messages, such as not you know, being too... Uh, sweepingly uh, denying the, the the use of algorithms or or denying the future kind of positive things that it could do for us. So, uh, I th I think this is such a comprehensive conversation that we had today. Do do you think we've missed anything? Is there anything else that you kind of want to bring up, Arjun? Also, do do you guys have anything else that, that, that you think we should quickly cover? I don't think we've missed anything. <laughs> that was a very I think we made sure not to miss anything. <laughs> I think all, all of your questions were hopefully yeah. answered for the rest of the year. So um, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> we're kind of after, after this. Anyway, thank you so much for, for talking to us for so long. Where can people find out more about your work if they're interested in, in reading more about it? Um, should they go on your website or my website is the best place to go because that's where i collect all um research output uh, including articles but also shorter essays and then also um media interviews and other um kind of more publicly accessible stuff that i do so if you're interested in my research uh, the website is the place to go Awesome. And, and, and your website is annettezimmerman.weebly.com. Yes. Uh, I just want to bring it out there for our for our listeners. And, and, and just to reiterate again, we just interviewed uh, Dr. Annette Zimmerman. She is a postdoctoral researcher uh, at Princeton University affiliated with the Center for Human Values, as well as the Center for Information Technology Policy. Um, and, and her core research interests 
are in contemporary analytical and political and moral philosophy. Uh, and within those fields, uh, she is primarily interested in democracy, collective decision-making, justice, uh, the ethics of risk and uncertainty. And we talked about sort of the intersection between AI and moral philosophy, uh, some of those more contemporary urgent issues today. Um, it, it, she has two current ongoing book projects in progress, uh, Just Risk. Uh, this is the first one. And the second one is called The Algorithmic is Political. Uh, so you may find out more about her work at Annette Zimmerman. Dot weebly.com and uh, thank you so much again for, for joining us today Dr. Zimmerman. Thank you for talking to me. That was a really great conversation. Thanks. Of course and Arjun how, how was it? Thank, thanks so much for joining me again buddy all the way over. from <laughs> Always California. a pleasure uh, yeah. and this conversation in particular really stood out. I really enjoyed it. I, it felt like yeah. the time like it really didn't feel like two hours had gone by. <laughs> so. I've done a lot of interviews lately and these questions were just really very nuanced and very philosophical, I guess. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Perfect. Thanks so much for, for joining me today. Uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, whichever podcasting platform you may. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.